This week's episode of Jackson Film Club of the Podcast is brought to you by Blue Yeti Microphones. Four settings, infinite possibilities. The Yeti is one of the most advanced and versatile multi-pattern USB microphones available anywhere. Combining three capsules and four different pattern settings, the Yeti is the ultimate tool for creating amazing recordings directly to your computer. Delivering exceptional sound and performance, the Yeti can capture anything with a clarity and ease unheard of in a USB microphone. What do you call a blind dinosaur? A blonde or blind? A blind dinosaur. Oh. Uh, no seed saurus. Uh, do you think he saurus? <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Jackson Film Club, the podcast. I'm your host, Sam Grafe, and I'm joined by my host. Uh, this is Michael Lamb. And uh, we're in a little bit of a different different recording setup this time so yeah, it may gonna, sound a little different but don't be scared we're gonna call this the uh the film club home studio yeah discussion's still gonna be thoughtful your boys are still gonna be slinging the best opinions in mississippi so don't don't be scared just mm. settle in and grab a grab a a nice cup of coffee cup of tea settle in some popcorn and, and just settle right in for this discussion of <coughs> bless you michael Oof. some some fresh discussion of um, November releases. So we had a episode not long ago recapping some October releases we wanted to talk about. So Michael and I have seen four films that came out in November that we would like to talk about on this podcast. Michael, what are those four films? The four films that we're going to be talking about today, Sam, uh, we're going to start with Belfast. Um, that's a new release from Kenneth Branagh. Yeah. And then... French Dispatch, the new Wes Anderson film. Uh, then there's House of Gucci. That's the second Ridley Scott release. For <laughs> the second Ridley Scott Adam Driver release. Yeah, that's a big one. Uh, and then we're going to finish up with Pablo Lorraine's Spencer, mm. uh, the Princess Diana biopic. Yeah. Uh, so let's get it started with uh, a little synopsis of Belfast. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, Belfast is a little slice of life film that is set in Belfast, Ireland, and it's a film that's more a story about a place and the stories that happen within that place than it is a story about the actual characters that you see on screen. Obviously, there's a family. Uh, there's you know, played by Jamie, Jamie Dornan plays the dad. Uh, Judy Dench plays the grandma, and those are the the two big names that I know. But the the main character is, is really the the youngest son. What was his name? Was buddy? it just Buddy? Yeah, Buddy. Because uh, nobody else is really named, I don't think, are they? In the credits, I don't think they were named. It was like Mom, Dad, and then yeah. Buddy was named. Uh, I really don't remember, and I don't think that it was really that important because you still get to know the characters through the movie. Uh, but. A lot of the movie is really like from the perspective of Buddy uh, as a kid trying to understand uh, basically this like civil war between Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland. 
it's a really sweet movie. Uh, I, I think that there's a lot of interesting family relationships, uh, relationship dynamics that are explored there, especially in, in that time period. And then there's, I, I think it's interesting storytelling because most of the stories in black and white when then there's some splashes of color. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that those moments are just interesting little threads that are yeah. kind of put throughout the movie. Uh, but most of the tapestries obviously in black and white. It is a very gorgeous black and white. Mm. Uh, I, I, I just love watching this movie. There's so many really interesting scenes. Yeah. The scene composition was great. <laughs> I'm starting to laugh because... Uh, Michael and I tend to have pretty similar opinions on movies. Um, I mean, rarely are they exact, but I mean, we rarely is there like a movie that one of us didn't like and the other one loved. These first two that we're going to talk about on this podcast, I think, are are pretty close to some of the most we've disagreed. I certainly didn't um, hate Belfast. I wouldn't even really say I disliked it, but. Um, I certainly, it certainly isn't one of my favorites of the year uh, by any means. And I actually have a lot of issues with some of the stylistic choices and the technical aspects of the movie. But um, where do you, do you want to start with? I don't know how, I don't want to start off on a bad note and start complaining about the movie, but. Um, well, I mean, I, I can gush about it, but. I, I would like to hear your take first, so we can start on the positives. Uh, well, I've already given a little bit of that coloring, yeah, just through trying to retell some of the story. I definitely think um, the performances were great. Uh, grandfather, um, I don't remember that actor's name, but he was really great, um, very sweet. Um, thought Jamie Dornan was great. The actress who plays the mother slash wife was the standout of the movie for me, but I yeah, cannot... I should have looked up her name before this. Um, I can't remember her name, but that was... By the end, she was probably the character I felt the most for and connected with the most. For me, from a story perspective, it took me a really long time to like really feel like the movie found its footing. I was not sure whose perspective we were supposed to be following because there were sometimes where... I was like, okay, this is definitely following Jamie Dornan's character. And then I was like, but it kind of seems more like you said, like a slice of life movie. And I feel like the little boy is the protagonist. I mean, he's on the poster. Um, so I was like, I, I guess we're supposed to be seeing this through his perspective, but it just felt like we were swapping so much that it was kind of hard for me to know who we were supposed to be following. Um, and I really didn't, care at all about any of the characters or the situation until towards the the end of the movie and then by the end i i I had a pretty mediocre to negative feeling on the movie until the last 15 or 20 minutes where i was like okay this feels like this is what the movie should have been the entire time but it just didn't really work for me that much it didn't make me emotional at all uh, the, I mean, there was certainly a point where I was like, okay, this is, if I were to have been invested the entire time, this is when I would have started to get emotional, but I just wasn't invested until the very end. So, um, that, what do you think that, that is? Disappointed me. I don't know. I think it, again, it might've been the, 
me being unsure of who I was supposed to be following the entire time. I, I also wasn't 100% sure on the disposition of the characters until a little bit later into the movie. I don't know why that was. I don't know if I can fault the movie for that or if it might have just been one of those days where I sit down on a movie and am not fully prepared to watch a movie until a few minutes in because I'm, I've been having other stuff happening that day, But yeah. um, which absolutely could have been the case. I will say, again, I, I wasn't... I didn't have much of a positive outlook on the movie until towards the end. And so by the end, that's when I was like, okay, I'm sure if I watch this again, I would be a little more positive on it, but I still, I don't think it's anything super special. Um, a lot, It's getting a lot of Oscar buzz and people saying it could win Best Picture, and I definitely don't know if it's Best Picture worthy. Yeah, so, I mean, I had a really positive response to it, um, but I, I don't think that it, it's quite up to even my own standards for for oscar level buzz yeah i mean that being said i did give it i think a pretty high score mm-hmm. uh, if i remember correctly i logged it on letterboxd uh, at four and a half mm-hmm. but so I, the, I when i saw it with you was your first time seeing it, it yeah was my second time seeing it and the first time that i saw it i was by myself i got really into it um, you were the only one in the theater right I was. I was the only person Which in the Which is theater. a nice... I think that's a nice place to be for a movie like this. So sometimes... Uh, and this will happen more often whenever I'm watching a movie uh, here at my house. Mm-hmm. Um, when I get into a movie, sometimes I'll, I'll stand up and like I'll actually participate <laughs> in the movie. So and like in Lord of the Rings, you'll be like swinging your arms around and during the battle scenes it, and stuff. Yeah, sometimes I'm just like expressing my own frustration towards characters yeah. and the decisions <laughs> that they're making. Um, but for this one, it was like I got up and I was just kind of like pacing around the theater watching the movie. Oh, really? Um, until until like the last you know, ten five minutes left. Yeah. Um, then I was just. I stopped in my tracks and, and I was just watching what happened and how it unfolded. Um, and I, I remember uh, being so moved. Uh, I mean, just just by Judy Dench at the end, she, she yeah. has the, the, the final lines of, of the whole movie. And it's definitely that, powerful. Yeah, that whole sequence leading up to, to just the couple lines that she gives by herself. Uh, just really powerful mm-hmm. and, and I, I was weeping in the theater by myself uh, so I think that, that just contrasting our experiences like whatever the director was going for definitely connected with me Yeah, uh, probably more so than with you so I, I'd be curious to see how you uh, how you react to a second viewing yeah Cause I think that I'm not completely opposed to watching again yeah. I'm just not going to go out of my way to watch it again You'd give it a fair fair shot, but I also understand like it's maybe not the most interesting movie. Mm-hmm. The, there's just a lot uh, of my own personal life experience that I brought into it. Um, so seeing like a mother and her sons, and then a father and his sons, and then yeah. a father and mother worried about their sons. It's like these are all things that that I've lived through before, and to see it from that side of it because i've always been the son in that scenario it was kind of eye-opening yeah i think 
I don't know if you find this, but sometimes uh, I think most people, if they have Letterboxd after they watch a movie, they'll log it on Letterboxd, review it, and then we'll go and read several reviews of the movie. Um, And uh, sometimes for me, that can help put into words feelings that I have that I haven't been able to put in words. Maybe somebody else found a better way of putting it that I, I knew... I didn't like a movie or I did like a movie for a certain reason, but I can't, I don't know exactly why until I read it in a review and I'm like, okay, that is, that's what I liked about it. Um, I saw a review talking about how the movie's at its best when it's about a couple struggling through a situation and trying to figure out what to do. That's the part of it that connected with me the most. Um, and so I think that may have been where, um, it kind of fell short for me because that doesn't really come much into play. I think you get little hints of it, but I think you see a lot more of it towards the end that they have a conversation on a bus that I think reveals a lot more. Um, and that was the most interesting part of the movie for me. So, um, again, I, w- I felt like it couldn't really make up its mind whether it wanted to follow the child or follow the couple. Um, if it were, I, I think a good example of a movie with like a pretty um, more of like a serious subject matter but through the perspective of a child would be like Jojo Rabbit. It's very much told from the child's perspective. Um, and there were definitely parts of this movie that were told from the child's perspective, but then, again, we'd switch to the couple, which I just found much more interesting. So I would have liked to have seen that. If it was going to commit to one perspective, I would have liked it to have committed to the couple's perspective um, and kind of seen their struggle with it. Well, I sort of disagree with your characterization a little bit because... Uh, the way I remember all of the, the scenes where the couple was in focus, the it was like Buddy is still there. Buddy, like Buddy, that's true. Like Buddy, he's on the Buddy's staircase. either like on the staircase watching in and and listening on a conversation that he's not really supposed to be a part of, or he's like asleep on the couch after Christmas and yeah. after they've pegged out on candy. So, I think that that Buddy's always there. He's always present in those conversations and that's why we're there Mm. uh, because it concerns him Uh, well because he's present yeah yeah I could see that that's it's just a different way of looking at than I was I was thinking I guess a much more explicit like we're following him as things happen Um, but um, to get a little into like some of my stylistic issues with it I do enjoy the splashes of color. I think we'll get into with our next movie how something like that can annoy me, but I think it really worked well here. So really, we only see color um, at the very beginning of the movie, and then we see it whenever the family is experiencing like a form of entertainment or like escapism or something. We'll see that particular thing is drenched in color, <clears throat> and I think that was done really well and has a um, really great effect, but, um, you mentioned the way it's shot. Uh, we saw it with actually Brennan who normally records the podcast for us. And, um, he was talking about how great the composition was. And that was one of the things that caught my eye in the trailer. I was like, Oh, I really like the composition of these shots, but it was another thing where I felt like the movie couldn't decide what it wanted to do where like it wasn't committing to a particular style so there were some times where um, there's a scene in the beginning with um, a bunch of people in the street, and it's very tied up and shaky, 
and a lot of stuff happening on the screen. And then there are times when the camera will be kind of set back in, in the room in a very observatory fashion where it's like you're kind of just watching the events of the room play out. So the camera's set in the back of the room and you're just watching things happen. And then there's times where um, you have very odd composition with people like at the very bottom corner of a frame, which is gorgeous. I love looking at it. But I, I think everything in film should be motivated, whether that be yeah, composition, be yeah, composition, camera movement, um, placement of actors, things like that. It should all be done motivated. So there are times when I would see that, but it almost looked more like the camera was set up, the shot was framed, and then the camera got bumped, and they just started rolling. And it was like, the composition is interesting, but what's it doing? Like, why? what's the point of this? I think a really good example of a movie with odd composition that is in service of the story would be um, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, which is on Netflix. Um, that whole movie is kind of off-putting and strange, and you know something's not right, and that's reflected a lot in the composition of the shots. People are framed in the bottom corners of the frame, or their headroom is cut off, or they have way too much headroom. It's just very strange looking. And so there were, I felt like maybe a third or half of this film was shot like that, but it didn't really, what was happening in the story wasn't warranting the way the camera was placed. But then there were times where there were really interesting shots that I think did serve the story. There's one in particular, if we're talking about the movie being in the perspective of the sun, where Jamie Dornan's character is talking to two guys kind of at the gate, and you see Jamie Dornan from behind, it's a really low angle. He kind of looks like a superhero. It's like, well, that's probably how his dad or his, how his son views him. Is like he's looking up at his dad talking to these two mean guys, and his dad looks like he's towering, like he's a, this superhero. And it, it didn't look like your con- conventional framing of a shot. So I, that was, again, I, I just felt like the movie couldn't really make up its mind as to whether it wanted to have kind of an observatory camera where you kind of just watch things play out or if it wanted to be right up in the character's faces or if it wanted to have more of like an artistic, let's frame this shot an odd way kind of thing. There were times where literally there would be two characters having a conversation and the second character, the one of the characters' faces was like a third of the way cut off, and you, it, they were just barely out of frame. And I was like, "This feels like a mistake," but it was done intentionally. But it just doesn't seem like there was a purpose because the com- the conversation doesn't warrant that. So it, it was something that was distracting to me. I've said it before. This may be because I'm a film student, and I'm always looking for composition and and why somebody might be why the filmmaker may be doing that or making that choice but it was distracting to me and i didn't feel like it was in service of the story the black and white is gorgeous the shots on their own are gorgeous without context but i think when paired with the story i'm not always sure what kenneth Branagh was going for sure uh well i already gave my star rating earlier so Mm. what's your star rating um I was probably at a, I, I hate, this letterbox has made me think this way. I don't know if it does to you two where you're thinking about your rating as the movie's playing out, which I think is a really bad way of watching movies and can a lot of times make you overly critical or, I don't know. It's a weird way to watch movies and I don't like it. But um, 
as the movie was happening, I think I was thinking about a two and a half. And then by the time the movie ended and I was able to see where it was going and, and the emotional payoff, I ended at a three star. I could see that possibly going to three and a half, but I, I don't think so. I'm confident on a three star. Three so that's stars. that's not a bad rating, but it's not anything special. Yeah, for me, like three and a half stars is the base. Uh, like that's that's the least that a movie has to be at before I recommend it to other people. Okay, that, that makes sense. Like yeah. on a general basis. Uh, oh, cool. Sweet. So that kind of wraps up our, our thoughts on Belfast, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch. This is another mm-hmm. one where I really enjoyed it, and I think you did enjoy it quite as much. I did not. Yeah, I. it wasn't one that I was out of my mind excited for, um, but I was looking forward to it. Um, I thought Are the trailer you a, was great. a Wes Anderson fan? So... I am. There are two of his movies. I, I love Fantastic Mr. Fox and Grand Budapest, which I've only seen once. I think it already may be one of my favorites of all time. I, I need to rewatch it. Um, the only other two of his that I've seen are Isle of Dogs and now French Dispatch. Isle of Dogs, I wasn't a big fan of. Um, I don't think it was bad, but I don't really ever want to watch it again. I think it, it was a little... West's style can be very gorgeous and it can be very tedious, and I think Isle of Dogs was one where it was tedious, and I was like, okay, I get it. Every shot is symmetrical, but it hurts my eyes now that I've seen <laughs> 400 shots in a row that are completely symmetrical. Um, but I wouldn't call myself like, oh, yeah, I, I love Wes Anderson, but there are movies of his that I love, and there are movies of his that I dislike, and French Dispatch is one that I dislike. But oh, You disliked? Yes. I thought I was going to like it based off the trailer. I was... I was Pretty excited about it. Um, and I can confidently say I did not like it. Um, well, so to kind of give uh, a bit of context for this film to our listeners, The French Dispatch is a Wes Anderson film which covers the, uh, the fictional publication of The French Dispatch uh, which was started by Bill Murray's character. I, I can't remember what his name is, but Bill Murray's character starts the French Dispatch, and he's hired a bunch of writers. And the movie uh, uses as a framework for uh, its narrative. The newspaper is deciding what is going into the last uh, and final publication. So there are three stories. Or is it four stories? I mean, the, the first one is... first one is like a little really travel quick. guide yeah, that, that's real fast. quick, told by Owen Wilson. Yeah. And then there's there's three other stories that, that are um, more of a, a full full act. Yeah. And, and so it sort of follows a, this three-act structure uh, where you've got Owen Wilson kind of as a prologue beginning. And then uh, there's a, an epilogue with how the movie ends. And so that's the structure of the movie. Uh, I personally found the first story to be the most interesting. I think it was... The uh, uh, Benicio Del Toro one? Yes, this one's yeah, Benicio Del Toro. It's the, the artist. Uh, and then the, the second story was great. And I think definitely f- the funniest of, of the three. Um, and the, the, the third story was the slowest, uh, mm. featuring Jeffrey Wright. Yeah. It's, uh, that's that actor. Um, 
the full disclosure is the first time I saw it, I actually fell asleep during the third that third part. Did you really? I don't uh, know. Did you tell me that? That's really funny. The, <laughs> it, it wasn't for too long, and I woke woke right up. Uh, so it wasn't like I, I'd actually missed anything, but it did signal to me very strongly. Is like this is the least this, interesting. This is, this is kind of boring. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so it made sense to me that that was the third story because that's kind of where you put that. Yeah, uh, you you want it to be right before like the big big end. What's but, I this is like interrupting, but like what what's your experience with Wes Anderson? So, I think the first Wes Anderson that I ever saw was Moonrise Kingdom. Okay. Uh, but of his work, my favorite has been Fantastic Mr. Fox. And it's great. And I'm not sure if that's because like, it's it's fun to to have that sort of animation style with uh, an actual adult in the room and, and leading an adult story. Yeah. And it did. It doesn't feel like the adult jokes in that movie are raunchy. Or, yeah. Or, or like over sexualized. Um, it's just genuinely funny. It is just genuinely funny for adults and also for kids. Yeah. Uh, so it feels like the the most family friendly, the most accessible of his works. Uh, I don't know if that's why it appeals to me. I feel like the ratio of people, of like children to adults, that would say this is one of their favorite movies leans more heavily towards adults actually. Even though it's because like yeah, I don't know of any kids who've seen it, but like apparently it works well with kids. But I feel like there's a lot of adults who are just like, yeah, I love that movie. It's one of my favorites. So I wonder then if the adults just have really good taste in artistic movies and they just don't want to waste their time with they probably with took their kids to see it and they're <laughs> like okay there's, an, there's a new animated movie out let's go watch it and then they were like oh snap this is really good <laughs> probably just, yeah i don't know if that's yeah i wonder how many people this was their first wes anderson film that probably a good bit yeah i don't know um i've seen uh, grand budapest and then what's the other one darjeeling limited oh yeah um those are both good the that every time that I've tried to watch The Life Aquatic, I've fallen asleep, and I've tried to watch this at least four or five times since college, and I, I want to love it because I have friends, you know, that they've shown up for Halloween dressed as Steve, as Steve Zissou. Yeah. Uh, they they really love that movie. I just it doesn't look appealing to me. I have not I've been, been able to survive longer than five minutes into that movie. Yeah. Uh, so that that's kind of my experience with Wes Anderson in general. Yeah. Uh, so I, I went into the French dispatch sort of knowing what he's about. Like he's not, um, he's a rule breaker, but he also tells you what the rules are that he's about to break. And, and for, for that reason, I, I, I like him as a director. Mm. Yeah. I think, um, I knew that it was going to be super Wes Anderson when I just based off the trailers and like seeing the cast list, like every every celebrity ever is in this movie. It feels like every every big actor right now is in this movie. It's a stacked cast. It's insane. Christoph Waltz is in it for five minutes and has like three lines. He same with Saoirse Ronan. Yeah, same with Saoirse Ronan. They could have literally been anybody. They I don't I don't understand how that works. With the budget, I don't know if they take massive pay cuts or what, because I don't know how they can fit this many actors into the budget, but there's a lot of people in this movie. Um, it was just, it just was constantly um, uninteresting to me. 
and it constantly got on my nerves um, with how Wes Anderson it was, how just overly convoluted it was. Um, everybody had to have their Wes Andersonism. Um, speaking technically and stylistically, I think it's super all over the place, um, and that can work really well. I, what I thought was going to happen was we'd kind of have a slightly different style per story, um, but it's more of like every shot has a little bit of a different style to it, and that really started to get on my nerves when between shots the aspect ratio is changing, we're going from color to black and white, um, and again, we just mentioned with Belfast, I can deal with a black and white movie that every once in a while has color in it. I think it can really emphasize those moments that are in color. But this just seemed completely random. Um, there, We saw it with a couple other people when, when I saw it with you. And uh, we were talking about the moments that you do see color. Um, and some of them did make sense for if you're putting emphasis on this or if you want to convey a certain message. But there were some times when it's just a shot of a dude walking up a staircase and it's been black and white for five minutes and this shot is in color and then it goes right back to black and white or it's been four by three aspect ratio and then it goes to widescreen for one shot, then it changes back. And it kind of just feels like Wes didn't ever want it to get visually boring, so he was constantly changing it up. There's about a 10 or 15 minute, um, maybe it's less than that, uh, animated sequence I think it's in the last storyline with Jeffrey Wright. Um, oh, that's not longer than five minutes. Are you sure? Yeah. Okay. Maybe it's right around five minutes. But it's it comes out of nowhere, and it, all I can think of is that it was because there was no way they were going to fit it in the budget because it's a car chase with some action stuff in it. And it just all of a sudden goes to an animated sequence, and I was like, cool, now I'm watching an animated movie, and then it goes right back. Um, and so... I can deal, again, I, I, I thought it was going to have stylistic changes like that, but um, when it kind of seems like it's done at random, um, that really bothers me. Um, I think it's super distracting. It was for me. Um, and then besides that, when it comes to the story, I just wasn't really interested in, in any of the stories except for the first one with um, Benicio Del Toro. Again, I, I thought it was convoluted with just an abundance of characters. Um I didn't care about any of the characters at all. Even with um, Guillermo del Toro's, I, I didn't care. I was just, I thought it was kind of funny and I was more interested in it. But by the time we got to the Timothy Chalamet, Francis McDormand one, I didn't care. Um, I didn't think it was funny enough for me to watch it as like a comedy. Um, and it wasn't interesting enough for me to watch it as just a regular movie. Again, like Belfast, it's gorgeous. It's probably perfect from a production design standpoint. Um, I think if you take any particular shot and single it out, it's gorgeous. But um, the stylistic clashes just took me out of it way too much. Um, there are times where it just will be handheld, and Wes rarely uses handheld, but then all of a sudden it's just like Born Identity style handheld for one shot and a conversation, and then it cuts back, and it's not like that anymore. Um, 
it probably will win best cinematography and I wouldn't be mad about that because again every shot's gorgeous but when you put all of them together um, and it doesn't feel like it's serving the story at all that really gets on my nerves and takes me out of the story you think you think French Dispatch has a chance of beating Dune in cinematography um I think I mean Dune will probably win but I think it has a chance okay um it's interesting how uh, with these last two movies, uh, we've just had very different experiences. Yeah. So with French Dispatch, what was your uh, what was your verdict? What was your star rating? I ended on a two and a half out of five. I don't remember I, what I gave it. I would have. I think I would have given it two had it not been for the sheer amount of skill on display. Like the actors are doing a fine job. The everybody behind the camera is super skilled. The execution of some shots blows my mind when it comes to what's happening within the frame with people being choreographed and sets being pulled apart in the middle of a shot to kind of either reframe the shot or have a completely different set by the end of a shot. But other than that, if you ta- if you were to strip all the all of that away, I would never watch this movie again. Wow. Yeah. Um. <laughs> This is another one that I gave four and a half stars to. Yeah. Um, I could see how somebody would love this movie, but I was just too separated from caring about anything by how much Wes Anderson was throwing at the screen and how desperately it felt like he wanted me to be like, look how cool this is. And I was just so distracted the entire time. Um, and uninterested in the story. Hmm. Just because I, I didn't feel like there was a single... This is going to sound stupid because obviously you can have protagonists that aren't likable and a movie still be great. But I didn't find a single person I thought was likable or I empathized with at all. There was one scene toward the end with Jeffrey Wright and um, the chef character that I was like, this is great. There's like a shred of humanity in this. And then it went right back to being French Dispatch. And I was like, oh my gosh, can we, there's just like, nobody in here is a human. Everybody is somebody on a chessboard, which is what Wes Anderson does really well. But well, I think some of that also is what the point of the movie is, because it's a movie that deconstructs journalism uh, as a practice. Uh, even in filmmaking, I think Wes Anderson recognizes the influences of the journalistic voice because you see it a lot through the character that Frances McDormand plays because she is uh, an actual journalist trying to report on this like revolution being led by students and then she ends up like editing the first draft of the student's manifesto so is she actually practicing any journalistic integrity uh, or Uh, it's this weird tension uh, when when you're trying to be objective but you still are a person you have to at some point say like no this is what I see and this is how I feel about what I see Hmm. I guess for me any of that was just so buried under Wes's style that I I couldn't find it anywhere until the very end Um, I started to see that you see kind of all after all the stories themselves have concluded all the journalists are together in a room and I'm like okay now I'm starting to see what 
I enjoy about the movie, and then it ends. So, um, yeah, any any message like that was completely buried for me. But I, I it gave it to you. I know. I'm sorry. I, I really did want to like. I thought I was gonna like it a lot. I wish I liked it more. Well, we don't have to keep talking about a movie you don't like. Okay. We can talk about a movie that I think you did like. I did like this movie. House of Gucci. House of Gucci. Why, why don't you tell the listeners what happened in this movie? So, House of Gucci, um, it's not... It, it kind of spans several... De- at least one decade. I think it's a couple decades. It's a couple decades. Um, uh, follows Lady Gaga's character, Patrizia. Um, she kind of gets connected, not by accident, but at a kind of randomly with Maurizio Gucci, played by Adam Driver. Um, at a party, they he, she doesn't know who he is, and they kind of get to talking, and she finds out, oh, you're Gucci, and uh, you can tell whenever he says that last name, her eyes just like dollar you signs. Can, you can yeah, you can see the cogs start to turn behind her eyes, and so they kind of spark up a relationship. We follow their relationship basically throughout the years. Her getting kind of slowly getting her claws into uh, Maurizio. And then the rest of the Gucci family, um, there's um, Maurizio's dad, played by Jeremy Irons, and then there's Al Pacino, who's Maurizio's uncle, Aldo, and then there's Hit, Adam Driver's cousin, Paolo, played by Jared Leto, who you wouldn't know was Jared Leto if you weren't told, probably. And then you kind of just watch the relationship unfold and kind of become more and more I guess intentions become more clear as time goes on and then some some more uh, scandalous stuff happens I guess it's kind of just watch these people tear each other apart I guess yeah but it's all set against the backdrop of a real thing which is Gucci the uh, I think going into this movie, you're you're kind of expected to at least know that Maurizio Gucci dies. Yeah, I guess because they definitely didn't hide it in any of the marketing or promotion. They're just like, oh yeah, by the way, she kills Maurizio. Uh, it's also in the the film description. Uh, yeah. if you ever look it up online, which uh, is odd because I don't know if that taints the experience of the movie or not. Because I walked in knowing that he died, so I'm like, I don't know. Is this like supposed? Is like I don't know if it would have been better to withhold that information because I don't think that's common knowledge. Most people don't know anything about Gucci aside from its expensive clothes. So I think it depends. The and some of that it comes, I I think is interesting. Like just from a filmmaker's perspective, it's like why? What is my? Who is my audience? Who am I actually trying to sell this film to? Is it people who know Gucci and like love the Gucci story or the brand or whatever, uh, and they love the history behind it, or you know they just want the history to be accurately represented on screen? I, I don't know that that's the type of person that's going to love this movie. Yeah. So like I I loved Jared Leto's character, but a modicum of research on Google demonstrated how the character that he played on the screen doesn't really represent who that person was in real I'm life. guessing this movie isn't very accurate. but in, I, in some regards, it's not, no. But the the point of a movie isn't really it to doesn't be really matter. accurate. It's to just 
it's to tell a story. Yeah. Um, and so I think what a movie does well is sort of imagine how does a story feel if you're a part of it? Yeah. Um, and, and that's where we as the audience get to participate. Like we're, we're I mean, movie watching is really voyeuristic in that, that mm-hmm. regard. So you go into this movie knowing like, oh, this is a movie where a wife plots to kill her husband so that she can steal his money. And even knowing that, I was still engaged the whole time. And I think it's because uh, Ridley Scott had these big characters and he knew how to get them on screen and engaged uh, with the audience. I think this very much kind of is is similar to Last Duel in, in the way of where it's a super long movie. Kind of seems like it could be boring, but then... I watched it, and I was engaged the entire time. Um, well-paced. They're well-paced, and the characters are just interesting to watch. I think this one, what The Last Duel had was, obviously, the different perspectives that you were following, seeing the differences in them, the similarities, um, and so kind of the way these characters were lying or the way they were telling the truth was was what was so interesting about it. With House of Gucci, it's kind of more of a lot of these characters are ridiculous and kind of over-the-top cartoony, and then you're also just kind of watching someone slowly slip a knife into the other person's ribs, and so that just kept me engaged the entire time. It's kind of also a little bit of a rise to power movie, kind of, in the sense that you're watching Lady Gaga go from kind of a nobody to then she's married to the head of Gucci. And she is kind of whispering in Maurizio's ear the entire time to where he's kind of cutting out other people who were a substantial part of the company. So I, that definitely kept me invested with it. I, I, I think I like The Lost Duel more, but I, I felt stupid. And am, am I so far on my list on Letterboxd, Last Duel's number two of the year and <laughs> House of Gucci's number three. And I'm like... Two Ridley Scott, Adam Driver movies just right there. There are people who hate this movie, by the way, which I think is really interesting. There's people who hate it, and I think the Jared Leto thing is interesting to talk about because it's like, at what point is it a good performance? At what point is it a gimmick? So, like, yeah. he's covered in prosthetics, so obviously he's transformative. He could have he could have gotten anybody, and it would have been hailed as transformative because you put 30 pounds of prosthetics on their face. So I think it's a great performance. I mean, a lot of people hate Jared Leto and will make fun of him. I definitely think he goes over the top with the method thing sometimes, but I think it's a great performance. Is an entertaining character to watch. Is he ridiculous? Yeah, yeah he, he's but, a bit of a caricature. Yeah, but it works. So, I don't know. I, I don't think it's doing anything like wildly interesting. It's just like a very enjoyable movie. It's fun to watch, and it's interesting. It's not one of my favorites of all time or anything, but... Um, it's a well-made movie. It's a well-made movie. I think it's a feat that any movie that's over two and a half hours long can keep you invested and you not get bored. So, I, I feel like I don't have a ton to say about it. It's just a good movie. I just enjoyed watching it, but again, it's not It's not shot incredibly well. It's not, there's not a crazy twist to it or anything. It's just fun to watch. Yeah, I remember when we came out of this, I don't think either of us really had um, any expectations going into it. So 
I'm curious, do you remember what your star rating was? I gave it four. That's right. I gave it four and a half. Yeah. Yeah, going off of the movies that we've already talked about. So I have, I had House of Gucci uh, lower than The French Dispatch. Oh, yeah. So this is the one you, you liked the other two more than this one so far that we've talked about. Yeah, so I had... Belfast and Spencer pretty much tied. Mm. Uh, so I guess that's a good segue to Spencer. Yeah, we can, we can talk about Spencer now. Which I think right now... I Spencer think is a Christmas movie. It is. I mean, it's very obviously a Christmas movie because it's it a movie that's, that's, that, that takes place over like a three-day period, a three-day weekend for Christmas. From what I know, it's a fictionalized weekend. Like the events that happen here didn't actually happen, but it's kind of like... Let's take the character of Diana and put her in a situation, and from what we know about her, this is probably how she would have, how she was feeling at the time that the movie takes place. I think I don't know. That's kind of what I've heard. Yeah, they do the same thing with the with the family as well. It's like the they they set up the royal family to kind of be these people who just don't understand Diana. Yeah, and. Uh, I think this is an interesting film because uh, you have Pablo Lorraine who he knows how how to how to set up a format for like a biopic, and so he follows that to an extent. And I think you're gonna get people who they want a biopic. You know, they want to see Princess Diana on screen, played by a young actress. You know, with with great production value. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't they don't want it to be confusing or art housey. And this kind of toes the line. <laughs> this, this definitely toes the line because there's at least one one sequence that I remember we had to have a conversation about afterwards. <laughs> Is it the the dinner scene with the pearls? Uh, or no, it was the it was a, staircase. It's the staircase. Yeah. <clears throat> so it's still with the pearls though. Yeah. The first time there, the first time that one of those scenes happens, I was definitely like. This is not a choice. I definitely don't think something like this happened in real life. And then as it went on, I was like, okay, this isn't real. Gotcha. Yeah. But I didn't know that going in that that was going to happen. Yeah, so there's the dinner scene with the pearls, which is where Diana uh, like eats a pearl. Yeah, uh, it's crazy. It, it, it's not real. But yeah, I think that that happens at least three times in the movie. She doesn't eat uh, pearls three times, but... It's just like, this, there's something that yeah, happens, and then it's, it's, it's like, oh, that didn't actually happen, but, but he, probably he made it inner, look like it. It's probably how she was feeling at the time. Yeah. Uh, and in that regard, I think there's like enough art house stuff and enough of the biopic stuff that it just works really well. Mm-hmm. And, and you also have Kristen Stewart, who's playing this renowned icon yeah I, I, iconic character uh, she's she's coming at it as an american i think she was the only american uh, who was cast right probably and, and that on its own has, has all these other expectations that that come along with it and what she was able to do it she brought out diana and like her nervousness her timid timidity and a way that was really natural for herself. And so it was like there were moments in the movie where like Kristen Stewart was playing Diana and then all of a sudden she was just 
both Kristen Stewart and Diana. The, the, there were a couple times where she would like, like turn her head a certain seamless. way, and I was like, that actually did look a lot like Princess Diana. Uh, I don't think I've really ever heard Princess Diana speak, but something that I did notice that I also have seen other people touch on, I, I don't know if it's accurate to Princess Diana, but especially for the first portion of the movie, it seemed like every line was like, choked out and it was like speaking yeah. like holding back tears like this the first time we actually really see diana she goes to a like kind of a gas station diner thing and is talking to people and even then it's like it's like she's putting on an air and i'm like is she about to start crying right now yeah it's like so, she's got all these words and she just has to like spit them all out all at once yeah so I, I don't know how i felt about that that was a little bit like so is like she about to cry right now or is just the, just the way princess diana speaks so I don't know, but it is a great performance. It definitely there again. There were times where I was like, "Wow, that really looks like Princess Diana," and it wasn't like a gimmicky thing where it's like she has prosthetics on. Like she you know, just the way she carried herself, the the mannerisms, the way she spoke. It was like, okay, this is doesn't feel like Kristen Stewart. Yeah, there was a there was a moment in this that completely surprised me, absolutely floored me. Uh, I had no idea that it, that this was something that was included in the movie at all. Uh, is it spoilery? Yeah. So, at what point have we actually cared about spoilers? Do, do I mean, I, I think we've done pretty good. I think the farthest yeah. we've gone is like saying there were dream sequences in it, but that's not really much. I don't know. I don't really want to spoil it because I think it is worth watching. It's it may be my favorite on this list. It's it's close with House of Gucci. So there's there's just two characters that are really kind. Um. Are you breaking my glass? No, I, I, for audio listeners, I just stepped on Michael's glass that he kindly lent me so I could drink H2O out of it. That's okay. I'll cut it out so that way neither of us is embarrassed. Okay. The There are two characters that I'm thinking of. One played by Sean Harris and then the other... Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I can't remember. Is it the... Uh, the but it was the, the, her dresser. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, oh, Sally Hawkins. Sally Perkins? Yeah. So I think it's Sally Hawkins. Okay. I'll take your word for it. Okay. Uh, but the conversation that they have on the beach where like, she confesses her love for Diana. Kind of came out of nowhere. It, yeah, it came out of nowhere. It really surprised me. It was just such a, a, a wholesome and human moment. It's like Diana just needed to know that someone saw her for who she was. And, it is like the most free we ever see Diana except for maybe towards the end. Yeah. And I, I just remember being really moved by that scene. Hmm. I think to get more to the style of the movie, you mentioned it being art house. I think this is a good example of a movie choosing, I guess, like a bold but more unconventional visual style and sticking with it and feeling coherent but also making sense. I'm pretty sure they shot on film, but like the entire movie just has a not vintage in the sense that it's like kind of cheap nostalgia for the time period, but it's like. It's very authentic. It feels like it takes place in the 90s, right? Yeah. It feels like it could have been shot in the 90s. There's a certain glow that everything has. It's like it's kind of like everything's slightly fogged out. There's a scene where she's walking. We mentioned it being a Christmas movie. There's Christmas decorations everywhere, and I just wanted to like jump into the screen and just like hang out there because it looks so warm and nice. But I, something that's really interesting, so the movie starts with soldiers bringing like ammunition boxes into the castle 
and I remember being very confused. I was like, this is kind of odd for a, like a biopic about Princess Diana. It starts with military trucks pulling up to the castle and stuff. But then they take it into the kitchen, open it up, and it's food. And they're like bringing in the food for the weekend. And so I, I'm not going to claim to have thought of the, about this because I don't think I'm smart enough to make this connection. But I think it was they, the person I heard talk about it mentioned that it was a very interesting way to establish food as a weapon. And it's like, that's a really interesting way to think about it. Because if you think about it, Diana through the entire movie is kind of, she's really not allowed to make any choices. And food is very much a focus of one of those things. It's like, she can't even sneak down at midnight to go get something out of the freezer, like eat ice cream or cake or whatever. Yeah, just because she, she wants somebody bothering her. Yeah, somebody's there being like, hey, what you doing? Feels like she has to eat this particular thing at this particular time. She has to wear exactly this at exactly this time so it's just like she's completely controlled she can't make any of her own choices i think that having that especially was just a really great way of establishing that yeah i absolutely agree well i guess to kind of wrap that that part of the conversation up what was your star rating for spencer my star rating for spencer was a four i i was between four four and a half but so I started with a four. I was between a four, four and a half. I have it at four right now. I didn't go four and a half just because it's. I don't think it's something I can watch all the time. I didn't like it. What like with House of Gucci? I was like thoroughly entertained through the entire thing. I don't know that I could say the same with Spencer, but I definitely think it's great, and I wouldn't mind watching it again. I probably will watch it again at some point. I also think. It kind of takes the theme of Diana not really being able to do anything that she wants on her own, kind of very controlled, and that's just kind of the theme through the entire movie. It doesn't really feel like it expands much on it or really does a ton with it, but I, I don't see there's much of a of a fault. It just kind of sticks, picks one thing that it wants to tell you the movie's about, and then that's what the movie's about. So it doesn't really feel like it's progressing much thematically. But I really enjoyed it a lot. It's one of my favorites of the year. Yeah. Well, I, I think that it was probably my favorite KFC ad uh, that I've oh, ever snap. seen. Oh, snap. Yeah. Definitely so, makes you want to get some KFC after. Uh, I gave this one four and a half stars. Yeah. Um, Good film. So before we wrap up our episode today, I actually wanted to mention one last bonus movie. <laughs> From 2021. So this is not one that Sam has seen. But it's definitely one that I want him to see soon. So I'm just going to tell you about it a little bit. Go ahead, Michael. This is uh, the directorial debut for... Rebecca Hall. Uh, nope, it's not Rebecca what? Hall. This is a directorial debut for this guy named Michael Sarnowski. This movie is called Pig. Oh, snap. That's not a November release, but... Okay. It's not a November release, is it? No. It came out in October. It came out, yeah, a while ago. But I watched it in November. Twice. And the general ethos of this movie is uh, it, it follows Nicolas Cage, who plays a character named Rob, who lives in the woods, and he hunts truffles in the woods with his pig, who is a truffle-hunting pig. So ten minutes into the movie... Don't spoil it too much uh, for me. Ten minutes into the movie, somebody comes and steals the pig. 
and the rest of the movie is Nicolas Cage trying to get his pig back. And the reason that I love this movie is because just with that premise, like you think you have an idea of what's going to happen for the next 80 minutes, and it just takes you on a ride that you don't really expect. It's one of your favorites of the year, right? It is. It, it, that actually jumped up to you. So I've been keeping track of my 2021 releases in, in a ranked list. Mm-hmm. And that one jumped to number three, nice. Behind the Green Knight and Dune as number one. Nice. So just officially, now that we're recording this, you do like Dune more than the Green Knight, correct? I think that Dune is easier to make a case for number one. Okay. Which one do you enjoy more? Uh, and joy is, is, is okay. subjective. Whatever. My, it's subjective. We're talking about you, so of course it's subjective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I get that. I get that, bro. But uh, I love Dune and The Green Knight. It's really hard for me to compare okay. the two. I still say that The Green Knight is my favorite uh, 2021 release. Okay. You just have to know that for me that logic doesn't make sense. Why you say your favorite is number two. But I'll let you do whatever you want, and we'll settle this with the last episode of the year, which will be our ranked list. That's correct. But I'll watch Pig. I'll watch it before the end of the year. And maybe it'll pop up on my list. Okay. But Maybe we can watch that one together. Okay. I think this has been a a really fun episode. I think if if we ever are to have more movies come out in a single month that we want to talk about, I think this would be a fun little tradition to start doing, talking about monthly releases, if it's something we find worth talking about. Yeah, as long as there's good movies. So Hollywood. Keep making good movies. Yeah. Wes, just throw a little more substance in with your style. Thank you for listening to the podcast as well. Thank Uh, you, guys. Yeah, really, really, really appreciate that. Each one of you, especially you, thank you for listening. Love you. Love you. All right, thanks. Bye.